we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands, just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And what we're going to talk about this time is guest worker programs or foreign worker programs. And they are always advertised as an ideal solution to the mismatch or perceived mismatch between jobs in developed countries and a lot of labor in developing countries. And the point is, it's supposed to be temporary, it's supposed to not displace American workers and not abuse or exploit inappropriately foreign workers. They never work that way. Or maybe occasionally they do, but as a rule, it doesn't work that way. And we have on the show today someone who's been working on the issue of foreign worker programs probably longer than anyone else anywhere on any side of the debate, frankly, probably in any country in the world. David North is a fellow at the center and has been working on the issue of foreign workers since the Eisenhower administration, at least at the state level at first and later at the federal level. I used to joke that he has been involved in the issue since the Johnson administration, and the joke was Lyndon, not Andrew, but actually it predates even the Johnson administration, but it predates the Lyndon Johnson administration as opposed to the Andrew Johnson administration. So David, thanks for joining us. And can foreign worker programs work? Can they ever work as advertised? Is it even possible? I think they can in a, in, in a minority of cases, and, and let's just dispose of that right away. One of the first things that I did when I was assistant to the Secretary of Labor for Farm Labor, that was back in 1965 in the Johnson administration, one of the first things we ran into, and I had been with the Labor Department before, but this was a, a new assignment because the Bracero program of World War II just had been eliminated by Congress. Congress wouldn't extend it again, which was a good thing. And the secretary needed some uh, political help from me. I had a background in, in elective politics. And one of the first things we ran into was one of these exceptions for the foreign worker program really made some sense. Right. This is in Aroostook County, Maine. For those of you who uh, aren't up to date on The geography of of Maine, this is the furthest north part of the state. It's a great big county. It is larger than a combination of Connecticut and Rhode Island. And whereas Connecticut and Rhode Island's population is is measured in the millions, there are about 165,000 people living in all of Aroostook County. Now, Aroostook County has some land at the very northern tip of it, which grows great potatoes, Maine potatoes. Mm -hmm. And the harvest time is about now. And when I got into this work in 1965, we soon learned that the locals took the 
question of a momentary labor shortage very, very seriously to the point where they closed down the schools. They started the schools in August 15th or something, and then come September 1st, they would close them down and all the kids could work in the fields. And so in addition to that, they brought in some people across the border from Canada to, to help with it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a temporary. They weren't badly paid. There was no ethnic discrimination. It's kind of a rare example of a foreign worker program that would that make some sense. Hmm. And checked the other day, and I found that they still closed some of the schools. So they Interesting. The program is still going on. So it's, in a sense, almost sort of an exception that proves the rule. If you exactly. Will. Another right. one would be, and this would be on a more permanent basis, university wants a native speaker and a Ph.D. to teach the languages. If they want to teach Uzbek, for instance, there's nobody around that does that. I mean, you, you can legitimately bring in a couple of folks from overseas who, who qualify to do this teaching and maybe teach in, in one of those military programs in California where they teach officers exotic languages. Right. And that's, again, an exception. But all too often, as I think you suggested, the problem, the, the motivation... Uh, is not to fill a genuine labor shortage, but to reduce wages. Right. That's different, and that's typically hidden by the by industry who keeps talking about labor shortages of this. Got to bring in people from overseas, or our widgets will not be made. And usually, that's just phony. Right. Or the crops will rotting in the fields is the. Oh, uh, absolutely. Is the, right. As a matter of fact, when I was in that job. Some people sent me some rotting onion. Yeah, right. Exactly. I can imagine. Yeah. Maybe threw them at you even. But in fact, on Twitter, I often use hashtag RITF, rotting in the fields, as a shorthand for the cliches on this. Now, it's interesting that, you know, guest worker programs do have a certain attraction, especially for Republican politicians. This is what I've found. And because it's a way of satisfying, you know, business interests. And, you know, just to give people sort of look at it in the most charitable way possible, the businesses aren't always lying about this. It's just that it's easier often to use foreign workers because they're readily available than to undertake the more difficult, more complicated, more maybe imaginative or expensive ways of not just offering more money, but maybe recruiting among people that they ordinarily wouldn't recruit among trying to get Americans who are out of the labor market back in, all those kinds of things do legitimately require more effort on the part of employers. And so giving everybody the benefit of the doubt, you can see why the appeal would be there. The question is, should government policy be geared toward making it easier for employers to avoid that extra effort to try to meet their labor needs? Well, I I quite agree. And Thinking back, and I was not working in the field at the time, but during World War II, <laughs> suddenly all the young males were hauled off to fight the war, the wars both in Europe and Asia, and there was a genuine uh, shortage. So what industry had to do, and what which industry did do, was to start losing its biases, and they had to struggle to find some workers, and they found that women could right. help make ships. And that it was okay to have blacks in a factory, which it hadn't been before. And so that was a period in, in which the system was stretched, stretched, did not break. And it set a good precedent, which unfortunately has been lost on 
today's industry. So I want to talk a little bit later on about how the actual system set up in law for the various programs could be changed. But what kind of things can be done at the enforcement or executive level to actually try to make guest worker programs, the reality of them, a little more consistent with the rhetoric and what people intend? In other words, so that they don't lead to you know, a loss of American jobs. They don't lead to abuse of the foreign workers themselves. They actually do end up being temporary, don't result in, I think, what they call settling out in the industry where people come on temporary visas and then just end up staying. What kind of things can an administration do before we get to the Congress part to make okay. sure that guest worker programs deliver more as advertised? Well, first of all, the, uh, the government needs to take this whole thing, the administration needs to take this whole thing much more seriously. And there's nobody uh, playing the role of the assistant to the Secretary of Labor for foreign workers, as there might well be. Right. So there, there needs to be a top-level concern about this, which has been lacking in recent years. The Trump administration was a little more interested in this than the Obama administration, but uh, neither one of them did as much as they should. And some of these things are, are just very basic. We need more people enforcing the law, mm-hmm. the various laws. We have, for instance, in the Department of Labor, where I used to work, there's something called the Wage Hour Division. This enforces the Wage Hour Act. It has about 1,000 workers nationwide, which is you know, approximately the number of police in, in the Bronx or something. And that's not even just focused on foreign workers. That's a that's for the whole workforce. Oh, that covers the the minimum wage per se, and also right. the, the the foreign workers. Mm-hmm. And so that's desperately understaffed. And then we need a system of stiffer penalties when companies are caught, as they are occasionally doing the wrong thing with either illegal aliens or with misusing their um, foreign labor force, their legal foreign labor force. We need stiffer penalties. Now, there, there is a something called a debarred list, D-E-B-A-R-R-E-D, and these are employers that have been particularly nasty in their treatment of, of foreign workers and, and of the law, and we should, when some company is found guilty of these things, they should be put on the debarred list, which means they didn't get any foreign workers at all. Right, they're prohibited from using the program, basically. They're prohibited yeah. from using the program for a period of years. It's mm-hmm. always a period of years. And the, there are only five debarred companies, for instance, on one of the biggest of the programs we'll talk about later, which is the H-1B for uh, professional workers. And it's a tool which totally at the whim, if you will, of the enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. And it's just not used. Now, there are two or three of these lists, and they're a little longer for the farm labor program than from the H-1B program. But companies should be put on those lists. And and when that sort of thing happens, it should be well publicized. Right. And this doesn't much, much happen. The interesting thing about the list issue, in other words, this list of people who are barred from participating, say, for two years in using a certain guest worker program, my sense is that the reason there's such reluctance on the part of bureaucrats, probably two reasons. One is they're worried about lawsuits and it's always easier to, sure. you know, to avoid lawsuits. But the other thing is I get the sense, and I think this is similar 
you get a similar vibe in the State Department when it comes to visa issuance, is that the companies have a kind of right to use this program unless they basically conduct themselves in such a way as to lose that right, rather than that this is a privilege and that if they abuse the privilege, it is taken away from them. Do you see what I mean? In other words, it's- Oh, it's, absolutely. And, and it seems to me that this is viewed as a right to use these foreign workers instead of, and this is something that could be part of messaging, say, for a labor secretary or DHS secretary in some new administration to make it clear, no, no, no one has the right to use any of these programs unless they are extended that privilege. And if they abuse the privilege, we yank it right away. That's a good formula. And unfortunately, that's not a formula that's been adopted by the people in charge of, of the various departments. Yeah. And frankly, in no administration. In other words, even though, in my experience, guest worker programs seem to have more appeal for Republican politicians and some Democrats are a little more willing to criticize them, I don't really get the sense that really administrations in either party have ever really taken this issue seriously in trying to make guest worker programs actually be the way they're supposed to be. Well, I certainly think that's true in the last 40 years or so. Right. Secretary Wirtz, the man I worked for, the late W.W. Wirtz, really felt strongly about this. And he was concerned about Americans losing jobs to foreign workers. He also worried about, and appropriately, that the presence of large numbers of foreign workers, were to be in, in a concentration of some kind, would tend to depress wages for everybody else. And that, I think, is true, and that is something that this administration does not seem to know. And interestingly, um, even Cesar Chavez viewed the guest worker program, the farm worker program of his uh, era, that was the Bracero program you referred to, in the same way. In other words, there is a certain amount of attention and awareness of his opposition to using illegal workers as a way of weakening bargaining power for workers. But earlier on, when he was a younger man actually working in the fields, the Bracero program was around then, and he opposed that because it was also basically another form of leverage against domestic workers trying to better their lot. Yeah, that's perfectly true. And as a matter of fact, I, I had one contact with him. We both were in a lobby, hotel lobby, I think it was in San Francisco. And a, a specialized issue had, had come up and... and he was unhappy about the fact that a strike of his mm -hmm. was being broken by um, by foreign workers. And he apparently did not know, until I told him, that uh, that's against the law and he should get in touch with the Immigration Service, which might do something about in that narrow issue. Right. And I just remember that as an interesting. interesting little bit of my history. He has, in fact, I remember I wrote a piece a while back on the occasion of National Border Control Day, which is uh, Cesar Chavez's birthday in March, I went through a speech that he had given at the National Press Club here in Washington in the sometime in the 70s. And he uh -huh. was complaining about the Border Patrol, that you know they had actually given the addresses of places where illegal immigrants were being stashed by farmers, and the Border Patrol just didn't 
follow up because it wasn't permitted to do its job. A couple of points on this issue about enforcement. One is that what you often hear from people on the left is that all we really need is better labor standard enforcement, and we should under no circumstances ever do any immigration enforcement. And their point is, as long as the labor standards are enforced, then there won't be the same appeal to use foreign workers, whether illegal workers or legal foreign workers on visas. What are your thoughts on that? It, it strikes me as an incomplete, almost sort of a, a kind of cope, as they say nowadays. Well, it, it, sounds, it sounds to me like a lot of wishful thinking, because right. we're never going to get to the point where labor standards are, are enforced sufficiently to discourage people from bringing in uh, foreign workers. As far as I'm concerned, that's a slippery thinking. Yep. And it should be exposed whenever we have a chance. In other words, the point is that you do need labor standard enforcement, but you also need immigration enforcement. Oh, you can't, absolutely. You can't just tie one hand behind your back, basically. Exactly. Now, exactly. the other issue that relates to enforcement, and this actually is involved in lots of labor standard issues, even for American workers, but also is very relevant for the use of foreign workers, is contractors. And again, we're just talking about visa programs here, but still, like a, a company that you know owns a harvesting machines and has a lot of harvesting people who work for it, could sponsor, say, H2A workers, farm workers. But if they you know, violate the rules or end up being on, you know, debarred from using it or whatever it is, they just dissolve it, start a new company. And the big employers that use the contractors, and this is also true even for the tech companies that use H-1Bs, they're not implicated because they've got this contractor as a kind of buffer between them. It's like mafia dons using intermediaries so that they're not directly connected to any violations. How do you deal with that kind of thing? Well, first of all, I like your metaphor. I saw a lot of this, particularly in the farm labor business, uh, where, where farm labor crew leaders are a particularly unattractive yeah. <laughs> group of folk. And often, you know, there would be a problem and laws of one kind or another were being broken. And the owner of the agribusiness in the big mansion on the hill said, oh, no, 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 that's, I don't do that sort of thing. That's my crew leader, my, my crew leader. Take away his license. Or it's more like, you know, I'm shocked, shocked that there are such abuses taking place. And, uh, exactly. Yeah, go, go call him. He's the one responsible. Exactly. Yeah. And so the crew leader, who typically was of the population that the workers were, typically be a, a Mexican or a Mexican-American leading a, a farm worker crew, uh, he got in trouble and the owner just skated away. That was the way I remember it. And it's been recurring in a different sense, in a much more ominous sense, in the H-1B program. The H-1B program is for college grads, foreign college grads, and for people with uh, particular skills. It's also been used very extensively by the high-tech industries. Mm -hmm. And what we find here, and I'm hearing from some American workers who are not getting these jobs, is that the entire structure is manned by uh, folks from South India. It's the HR people, sometimes it's the lawyers, and in many cases it's a labor broker like Infosys. And the labor broker is owned in India, 
and most, if not all, of his executives are from India. And it gets to the point where one guy told me, I never talk to an Anglo on, uh, when I apply for a job. I'm always connected to, to uh, somebody from India. Right. And in a few cases, at least in one case, he applied for a job and the interview didn't happen because the HR person spoke only Hindu. Interesting. So this is, it's sort of the white collar version of what you were talking about with the crew leaders and farm labor. In other words, well, it's, you, it's, it's worse, yeah. frankly, because it's, I mean, Emphasis, which I just mentioned, is an right. international firm. One of the heiresses is married to the Prime Minister of Great Britain, right, to give you right. some sense of, <laughs> of the power of these folks. And so this is a staffing company. They provide, they sort of rent people exactly. to the regular tech companies that people would have heard of. And so those, like, you know, whatever it is, Microsoft, Intel, et cetera, they don't technically employ these people so that the requirements that are in the guest worker programs in the law are the contractor, this labor company's problem, not Microsoft or Intel's problem. Right. Some of these companies do, a, the bigger ones do a two-level situation. For their better paid workers, better paid foreign workers, they Microsoft, for instance, uses H-1B directly. Right. And for its lower paid workers, and uses these labor brokers. Interesting. Right. And it's a complicated system, and it is being gamed skillfully by everybody but the American workers. Right. Is there, and this you know, could be a whole other show probably, and it also goes beyond the immigration issue, but is there some way to deal with this contractor issue? In other words, a way of avoiding labor standards, whatever the labor standards are, by creating this distance, this buffer of the contractor? Well, one of the things is that the, the law should be enforced more vigorously. And secondly, we should look at some of these programs in which Congress could act to do something useful. Now, we've been talking largely about how administration can do something. Right. But Congress can do something, too. Now, let me bring up a program that uh, we haven't talked about yet. And that's the OPT program. Right. OPT stands for Optional Practical Training, which is meaningless. The OPT program runs from one year to three years. It is for alien grads of U.S. universities, either bachelor's degree or above. And for the first year, anybody with a degree uh, from overseas who has a new college degree in America can work in this program without the need for the employer to say that there's any labor shortage. This just is a, is a sort of a right. And just to make clear, these are people still on their foreign student visas. In other words, they're sort of masquerading as foreign students almost. All, all the people we're talking about have F-1 visas. And as far as the government is concerned, unfortunately, they're regarded as students. Right. They're not students, they're alums. Right, yep. And the period of grace is three years if you happen to have a STEM degree in science, technology, engineering, and math, and, and some colleges are, are making extremely uh, questionable decisions as to what consists of STEM and what does not. Right. You and I, Mark, are externalists. I find that in some universities, they think that that's the STEM uh, yeah. 
activity. Yeah, pretty soon sociology and basket weaving are going to be STEM uh, exactly. fields too. <laughs> yep. Exactly. And so this is still, we're still talking about an executive program here. In other words, this is not something established in the law, correct? It is not. Congress could and should uh, abolish the whole program. Congress has, has not lifted a finger. A friend of ours, Mr. Miano, has, has been suing the industry for something like 10 years and hasn't managed to get the courts to do anything about it. It's the same lawsuit, too. I mean, it's ridiculous. This is like oh, something out of Dickens. It just goes on forever. But there's something else about the OPT program that I want to mention, which is never mentioned in the press mm-hmm. and rarely, if ever, even in the lawsuits. And that is, it's subsidized. Now, the subsidy is sneaky, and it was created by the Bush II administration and then expanded by the Obamas. The program was nibbled at during the Trump years. And then under the Biden administration, there have been no nibbles, and if anything, it's growing. Right. As I was saying, the, the subsidy comes from the fact that the employers are excused from payroll tax. Right. Pay, payroll taxes support Medicare support Social Security, to a lesser extent support unemployment insurance, and so our aging, our sick, our unemployed, <laughs> are busily shoveling money for private employers who use foreign workers. And that subsidy does not happen if the employer hires a recent U.S. citizen or green card graduate of an American university. The federal government is, is in a sense, bribing private industry to not hire Americans. It's, it's an outrage. And the reason for that is that these are supposedly students. In other words, if you're a college student working at a part-time job on campus or something like that, your employer then doesn't pay payroll taxes That's either, correct. but you're not considered a foreign worker in that sense. Well, this is blurring that by taking these people who aren't students anymore, but are technically under the foreign student visa still, and creating a foreign worker program. It really is outrageous. And you had said that Congress could abolish it. That's true. But frankly, any administration could abolish because it's just created out of whole cloth. There's no reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Either one. This is one of the cases where either the legislative or the executive could do the right thing, and neither has done it. Right. And further, I talked about one year or three years. People can and do game it, the foreign students. They have a, get a master's degree in tech of some kind, and then they go on and get another master's degree. And throughout this period, their employer is being subsidized by the feds for hiring this foreign worker. Right, it's, right. It's, it's terrible. So what other things can Congress do? Frankly, if we're up to me, most of these would just be abolished. But are there things that Congress can do by changing the underlying law to make these guest worker programs perform more as the politicians pretend they do? There's a whole series of little adjustments that they could make about timing, about the temporariness, Mm -hmm. about the subsidies, which exist incidentally in both the H-2A program for farm workers and also for the OBT program. They could eliminate those subsidies. Right. And they could simply uh, make it clear that the program should all operate, and this is not true of all of them, uh, under a provision that the employer must make a positive effort to hire American workers before they can even consider 
being granted foreign workers, and that just simply has not been done. Right. I'm I'm actually kind of skeptical about those recruitment requirements. Not because I don't think it's you know a bad idea. I just think that if the opportunity, if the possibility is held out there of being able to hire a foreign worker, I don't know that there's any legislative framework or you know regulatory framework that will actually impel businesses to do it necessary. In other words, rather than invest in whether it's machinery to save labor, whether it's you know recruitment efforts to say maybe start a guest worker program within the United States, whatever it is, why spend money on that when you can just buy some lawyers and politicians, and you know you have a maybe a better chance of success? Because remember there was that I mean you you familiar with this obviously there was a video years ago that I think I'm sure somebody saved from some law firm explaining how to comply with the rules about recruiting American workers and at the same time making sure that there won't be any American workers that you find. In other words, how to jump through the hoops, but make sure that you are unsuccessful in finding any Americans at the end. Yeah, that's perfectly true. And the employers are wily. They have expensive and often successful lawyers, and they can get around these things. Now, if Congress decided to end the subsidies, for instance, in the OPT program, Mm -hmm. that would end the subsidies in the OPT program. A nice, clean-cut victory for American workers. Sure. And you're right. If there is a um, recruiting requirement or something like that, it easily gets subverted by um, clever lawyers. And so the reform should come in sort of large chunks and large chunks like ending the subsidy in the OPT and the H-2A worker programs would be, a, would be a great idea. Right. So we're getting toward the ends, but I wanted to talk about some specific guest worker programs. And you, you had sort of sketched out what some of the worst ones are and then what some of the least bad ones are. Let's go through that. What is one of the really bad ones that checks off a lot of the bad boxes? Well. H-2A, and and we've got to use a lot of initials here, is for farm workers. Mm -hmm. And this is a particularly bad one because these are essentially lousy jobs. Right. The people are concentrated. You know, this is not just that Mongolian teacher. This is hundreds and hundreds of people are in the same place, and therefore they are more likely to be exploited. Furthermore, there's the question of indenture. If I'm working for a Garlic Company of America, they can say, you either do what I tell you to do or we'll get you deported. Right. And that's an element that's not true in some of the other programs. So, yeah, in other words, they could say, look, we don't need you anymore and your visa will be lost and you have to go. So basically they're, I mean, slaves is an exaggeration, but, you know, it is sort of indentured servants in a sense. Right. Now, the other end of the extreme is the H-4 program. This is for some spouses of H-1B workers. These tend to be women above the years of 28 and typically from India. And they are married to H-1B workers whose employers have asked for a green card for those uh, those H-1B workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, they're allowed to work. Not all spouses are, but this subset of spouses are. And... They, they tend to be college grads themselves, so they get, they get some fairly decent jobs. 
there can be no indenture because the and the reason that they, they are here in the country is not because the employer asked for them. It's because the, the employer of the spouse, of the husband, asked for them. So they're, they're under no indenture. Yeah, they aren't, although they're sort of indentured. They're kind of one step away from indenture since the husbands are indentured. Good way of putting it. Right. There are no subsidies. Right. And there are no concentrations. Right, right. And also it's a fairly small program. Sure. So this is sort of bland as opposed to... Um, Although even there, you know, H-4 spouses, the law doesn't give them the right to work. This is also just an administrative thing. That's right. And the point of it, of course, is that the way it's sold is, look, these H-1Bs, the the husbands for the most part, are going to stay. They're going to get green cards, so we might as well let the spouses work too. In a sense, I mean, I take your point. You're right, obviously, that because of all these reasons, the size is small and all the other reasons, it's clearly much less problematic than the larger and more problematic guest worker programs. But it still is a way, it's based on the assumption that the H-1B program that the spouses are under is not really a guest worker program. It's just a tryout permanent immigration program, or the first step toward permanent immigration, which is not what H-1B is supposed to be either. No, that's right. That's exactly right. So we haven't exhausted the issue, obviously. There's all kinds of other, for instance, there's the H-2B program we didn't even talk about, which is the lower skilled but non-agricultural guest worker program. There's a lot of landscapers or carnival workers, apparently, all kinds of things. There's a whole alphabet soup of guest worker programs we could talk about. To support what you're saying, Mark, one of the problems with this is all this stuff is very, very complicated. Right. It's complicated not because of anything except that industry wants it that way, because mm-hmm. they want this little exception and that little exception. And it's hard for Joe Citizen to understand what's going on when there are, you know, a dozen of these programs, including one designed specifically for Walt Disney. Oh, really? Which one is yeah, that? I think it's Q. Oh, okay. It's an international exchange program. Oh, right. Yes. No, I remember at Disney World, yeah, they have the little name tags and says what country somebody is from. I think I was at Epcot. This is many years yeah, ago. Yeah, And I started yeah. talking to them, and yes, they were on Q visas. And there's, a, there's also the J visa, which is a cultural exchange visa, but under it, one of the subcategories is the summer work travel program, which we wrote about, which is another, again, an ostensibly non-guest worker program, which is just a big guest worker program. So, exactly. Yeah, I mean, my sense, honestly, is that arguing over, you know, recruitment requirements, minimum pay requirements, all of that stuff, in a sense, is playing the game of the other side. Because ultimately, I'm not sure there's any way we can avoid these programs being gamed to the benefit of the various interest groups that want them. This is why, and look, I work at a think tank, so I don't have to worry about what the reaction will be, but it seems to me that all of these programs, except in the most limited cases, like a Fulbright scholar or what have you from abroad, they all just need to be abolished because there's literally no way to make them deliver, make them perform as advertised. In my opinion, it's a fool's errand to get that to work. I think you're right. So thank you, David. David North has been our guest talking about guest worker programs. 
There's a lot more to say about these, but I think we gave a good sort of overview of what the problems are and what the possibilities are. And we'll see. There's, uh, this problem is not going away. I'm not going to get my wish where all of these programs are simply erased from the law and we stop playing these Mickey Mouse games. And so this issue will come back and we'll probably come back to it. Thank you for joining us, David. You're welcome. And finally, I wanted to talk about a new report that we've published this week that actually does kind of relate to the foreign worker issue we just talked about, not directly, but the report is called Working Age But Not Working. And it's on our website, cis.org. And what it does is it looks at the trend over the past many decades, not just a few years, of a declining share of working age people who are actually in the labor force. In other words, they're actually working or looking for work. And the important point here is that people who are not actively looking for work, which is defined as looking for a job in the past four weeks, are not counted as unemployed. So when the newspapers report the unemployment rate is you know, low or high or going up or down, they're only talking about people actively looking for work, and they're not talking about people who aren't in the labor market anymore. And that share of working age people who are in the labor market has been going down steadily for many years. The report that we just released this week shows that the number, that the share of people in the labor market has bounced back to the pre-pandemic levels. So that's kind of the good news. The bad news is that the pre-pandemic levels reflect a decades-long decline in the share of people, working age people who are working. This is not an issue of people retiring and what have you. And the phenomenon is especially pronounced among people without a bachelor's degree. So, you know, non-college workers, uh, either high school dropouts, high school grads, even people who uh, have some college but not a degree, the share of those people who are actually in the labor market, working or actively looking for work, has been going down for decades. And the relation to the guest worker issue that we just talked about earlier is that there's a huge pool of people that could be tapped into rather than importing foreign workers. In other words, if the share of American-born working-age people who were working was the same today as it was in the year 2000, which, yes, if you're very young, that may seem like a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. So the same, what they called labor force participation rate, were the same as today as in 2000. There would be well over 6 million extra people in the labor market. And the you know, the complaints that we don't have enough workers on the part of businesses, which is why they argue for more guest worker programs, higher levels of regular immigration, and, uh, you know, kind of winking at illegal immigration would simply not have the same force. So this report talks about, there's a lot of statistical detail, which, you know, you can dive into if you want or not. But the principle here is that if employers are saying they need more workers, going the route of importing foreign workers, however that's done, is in a sense a kind of cop-out. 
it's easy, maybe, it's easier than the alternative, but the alternative of undertaking the kinds of policies to draw Americans of working age back into the job market is both, it's, you know, from my perspective, morally the right thing to do, but it's also socially important because being out of the labor force, in other words, neither working nor actively looking for work, is associated with a whole host of social problems, whether it's deaths of despair, crime, welfare dependency, and those are all issues that aren't going to go away just because you import a foreign worker that makes your life, say, as the owner of a B&B who needs a staff member to clean the house, makes your life easier. Those problems don't go away. And so what this report, Working Age But Not Working, tries to do is lay out the reality that we as a country need to do a better job of drawing people back into the world of work, however that's done, rather than take the easy way out, the cop-out of importing foreign workers. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian. If you like what you heard or don't like what you heard, either way, feel free to rank and rate and review us if your podcast platform permits for that. And in any case, feel free to email us at center at cis.org. I hope to have you tune in next time. Thank you. <music>